We are customers. We buy things online. But most of you that are listening are also sellers and brand owners. So you, your brain, your persona is two different things, a buyer and a seller. But understanding both of those perspectives and understanding where they collide and intersect is an actual art. Our guest today, who's been selling online since 2002, has a really great, I don't know, piece of advice or or several pieces of advice, I guess I would say, that help us understand where that intersects and what to do with it. It's going to be a great episode. Listen to the end. Here we go. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan. And at every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous, and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock, in the AM and the PM. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AM PM Podcast. What happens when you've grown your Amazon business as much as you can and don't have the time or resources to take it to the next level? That's where Thrasio comes in. Thrasio acquires category-leading FBA brands from small business owners just like you and specializes in taking your brand to new heights while you profit from the growth. When you sell your business to Thrasio, your deal could include a long-term earnout, meaning you profit when your brand grows under their management. So if you're thinking about selling your FBA business, visit Thrasio.com slash Helium10 to connect with Thrasio's deals team. That's T-H-R-A-S-I-O dot com slash Helium10 for more information on if your brand is a good fit for Thrasio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the AMPM podcast. I'm your host, Tim Jordan. And as usual, today we're talking about business. Today we're talking even more specifically about e-commerce. I know sometimes we get off on some tangents that are related to us as an audience, but not always about directly selling. And we are going to be thinking big today, right? Some, Some kind of principles, some dynamics, some theories that really cover marketplace sellers. They cover D2C sellers. They cover uh, brand developers. They cover digital marketers. Like Everybody that's listening to this, this should apply to. When we think about selling something, a lot of times we as e-commerce sellers, we dive too deep into the tech. We dive into what keywords we're, we're targeting. We dive into how to rank for Google or rank for Amazon or rank for Walmart. And we're thinking about algorithms when we should think about actually selling. I know too many people in this space that try to put lipstick on a pig, so to speak, right? They've got a crap product. They've got a crap brand experience. They've got something that they're trying to sell that nobody actually wants. And they need to step back and think like, maybe it's the sales pitch that's the problem and not the paid traffic that's the problem. So today we have a guest. His name is Matt Edmondson and he's in Liverpool. And he has been selling, like I said earlier, since about 2002 online. Directly and indirectly, either his own brands or clients that he works with, he's responsible for about $150 million in worldwide sales. He still has, um, I guess, currency as an active seller. He was just telling me that he just exited another brand last year, but he also works for a lot of e-commerce brands, figuring things out. And I love the perspective and the, the advice from agency owners because they're not just giving the perspective of their one brand, they look at a lot of different brands. So they get a really good, like holistic overall view. So Matt, welcome to the episode. We're super glad to have you here. 
Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to say right here at the start, I have never heard that phrase lipstick on a pig before. And I am I am totally stealing that. I'm going to be using that a lot. So uh, that, that was worth the, the price of entry right there. <laughs> well, what I love is I can say a phrase like that and everybody knows what it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you maybe can't. <laughs> you can't articulate it at the moment, but you're like, I know exactly what this means, right? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. It's right. some of those old Southern sayings. I worked for uh, 10 years as a firefighter, a full-time firefighter mm-hmm. here in the great state of Alabama. And I worked with a bunch of older country redneck hillbilly firemen that had some of the greatest expressions and sayings mm-hmm. I've ever heard in my life. And I wish <laughs> I could go back in time and have started a journal and wrote those things down because yeah. somebody would say something and it was descriptive and I'd laugh for four days about it and then I've forgotten mm-hmm. about it. It's just, mm-hmm. it's gone forever, right? It's yeah. like a, it's like a dying art, the, the Southern expressions. But anyways, I appreciate you enjoying that. So today we're going to talk about the confluence, the intersection of two different perspectives, the buyer and the seller, and how understanding that can unlock some potential for us, right? It can mm-hmm. help us figure out ways to sell more. But before we get into that, I want to hear a little bit of your story. Uh, what were you doing before e-commerce? How and why did you get into e-commerce in 2002 before anybody else was thinking about it? And how did that get you to 2022 where you've had multiple brands and you're you're providing services for others? Well, it's, it's an interesting start. Uh, I started on the on the web, um, sort of in the mid, well, sort of the late nineties, really. Uh, a friend of mine um, came to me and he said um, that he wanted to do a website for his his church. And did I know anybody that could do websites? And I was like, sure, but they. This was in the late nineties. This, I mean, these things cost a stupid amount of money. There was no Squarespace. There was no shop. There was nothing back then. Um, and so I said to him, listen, but if you, um, if you give me the software, I kind of knew that there was some software around that could help. I said, I'll figure out the whole website thing and we'll, we'll go from there. And so we made a little deal and he bought me and, and some of your mis- listeners may remember that back in the late nineties, we used a piece of software called Dreamweaver. That's how we created websites, uh, before they were bought out by Adobe. And um, so I, I wrote my first website and it didn't take long then to sort of go, well, hang on a minute, people are now starting to buy things online. And so we decided to, um, I approached a, a friend of mine who was selling some products. We were buying them from him, actually, some consumables and um, for our customers. And I said, well, can I just start selling these online? And that was 2002. And we launched our first website um, in 2002, selling these things online. Six months later, he bought that website off me. It was doing great. And, you know, we we learned quite quickly that actually, geez, you can wake up richer than when you start going, you know, when you go to sleep. And so that was a beautiful thing. Um, and so, yeah, that's when I got hooked onto this whole concept of um, of doing stuff online. But when I started, when I did it, it was a side hustle. Um, and it was a side hustle for a little while. We were doing um, uh, saunas and steam room installations. I was selling saunas and steam rooms as a sort of a, it was my main role. And we, the whole internet thing was something that we did on the side. And so, yeah, eventually it grew to be a full-time career. And uh, like you say, here I am 20 years later, waxing lyrical about e-commerce and it's just still still got the passion for it. What was the most interesting thing you've ever sold online? The most interesting thing I've ever sold online? I That's a really great question. 
Um, I can't believe you weren't ready for this. Like no one's ever asked you this. Yeah, no one's. Honestly, no one has ever asked me this uh, <laughs> at all. I just, and I'm just trying to think through the back catalog of, of products that I've sold uh, online. Um, I have to say, the thing that I'm probably the most proud of that we sell online, um, and I still sell it online. It's um, it's an omega three capsule, um, like a food supplement type thing, and. Um, the reason I'm we're proud of those is uh, we that they're manufactured in a way that the omega three is not extracted from fish. The the science guys behind it kind of went, you know what? Um, fish don't make omega three. The omega three that they that we get from fish comes from the algae that they eat, and so there are these huge tanks which grow this algae and manage to extract this omega three from it. So it's pure and. Every time someone takes, you know, one of our omega-3, we're like, hey, you've just gone and saved the lives of sort of 40, 50 fish or whatever it is. Um, and so that's probably one of the products that I'm most proud of. Uh, I don't know if it's the most interesting because omega-3 is not really that interesting. <laughs> no, but, um, but the fact that you moved up or, or down, up or down the food chain, I'm not sure which direction that is, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. saved some fish. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Absolutely. All right, so you have a theory that that has been talked about before. It's one of kind of the things that people like to pick your brain about. It is this concept of toilet seat marketing. Mm -hmm. And even before we start recording, you didn't actually explain what toilet seat marketing is. I'll tell you what popped into my head. Go for it. Right? When I think of toilet seat marketing, I think of like catchy, um, appealing, like impulse purchase type ads that I see while I'm scrolling through social media, while I am doing my morning business, while mm -hmm. I'm sitting on the toilet seat, mm -hmm. because most of the day I'm running around, right? But like toilet seat time is mine. Mm -hmm. And that's when I think of like the most compelling ads or like the things like, oh, this is interesting because mm -hmm. it's the time that I'm actually disconnected. I have some peace from the kids, hopefully, um, if I remember to lock the door and my five-year-old didn't need to have a long discussion with me. Yeah. Um, sorry, everybody. I'm talking about my morning poop. Um, but that's what I think of toilet seat marketing. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that we're going to get into the convergence of perspectives, and I know you'll explain that. But let's go ahead and dive into this concept of toilet seat marketing, what that is, and why it is applicable and important for us to understand. Yeah, no, let's do it. Uh, we call it, I, in our house, we call it the throne room time. Uh, we're going yeah. to the throne room. We're going to sit on the throne uh, and dad just needs his, to be fair. My kids are a little bit older than yours, uh, Tim. So uh, I've, I, you know, I would it's be not as cute surprised. when a 16 year old kid walks in on you. No, right? no, it's a little bit more shocking, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're a little bit, slightly a bit more disconcerted. You're like, uh, something is very wrong uh, yep. right now. Um, and so, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't have that problem anymore, which is great. Um, so toilet seat marketing, the idea came from, I totally plagiarized it. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, just, I stole it off a friend of mine from Texas. He was telling me the story about when he uh, was working a job when he was in college cleaning toilet stalls. And um, he consistently won the award for the cleanest toilet stalls. And so if you picture in your mind how somebody would go in and clean a toilet stall, it's not the most interesting picture, but you can you can picture it. You can you can open the door, you can see someone cleaning the wall on the left, you can see someone cleaning the wall on the right, given the you know, the, the toilet, a little bit of a cleaning and, and then leaving, right? You don't want to hang around. You want to get out. Um, and so the question was, how do you consistently win the award for the cleanest toilets? That's how Rich broached the topic with me. 
And um, what he did, which was fundamentally different, the reason why he kept winning the award, much to the annoyance of everybody else, uh, was simply he did one thing. He went in, he cleaned the wall on the left, he cleaned the wall on the right, he gave the toilet a little bit clean. And then he did something that nobody else did. Uh, he simply turned around and sat on the toilet seat. Um, and he, he said, it's interesting because from this vantage point, you have the most important perspective mm. of the whole thing. Um, you have the perspective of the user. And that story has always kind of stuck with me because when it comes to business, when it comes to running an e-commerce business, especially because everything is so viral and everything is so shareable, um, there are two perspectives that you have to think about. One is your perspective as the business owner. And the other is you have to turn around and sit down on the toilet seat. You have to look at your business, your product, your offering from the perspective of your customer, because that's actually the most important one. It's not the only one, but it's probably the most important one. And so that's sort of the story of toilet seat marketing in a well, nutshell. I'm just going to warn you, you can tell your friend from Texas, I am also plagiarizing this because this is amazing. <laughs> and I, I can honestly imagine this because if, if I'm a janitor and I step into a toilet stall and you've got a few things, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm standing in the stall, but I don't see the back side of the door, the stall mm -hmm. door. If I'm looking at the toilet paper dispenser, I don't see the other side and see if it's dirty or it's got dust on it, right? Mm -hmm. So like literally turning around, closing the door, sitting down, looking at different angles, seeing the different nooks and crannies that you wouldn't see from the other side. Um, wow, that's like super impactful. Like I want to put that on my wall. <laughs> like sit on the toilet occasionally and see the other side. Well, to Amazing. be honest with you, Tim, I, I've talked to um, various people over the years using this story. And during lockdown, we did a story with um, with a, a bunch of doctors um, actually talking about this concept of toilet seat marketing. And so the idea was that we would send um, everybody there a toilet seat. So, um, and they, during the presentation, we, we physically made people sit on the toilet uh, seat, just put it, turn around and put it on their chair. And actually we've, we've, I know people that have them there hanging in their office just to get people to just to come and sit on there and go, let's think about this from a different perspective. And I think it's quite an interesting thing to do. Amazing. Love it. All right. So let's talk about what that means. I know that um, when it comes to marketing, you use this term. I'm going to, I'm going to say it right now, but you said it before we started recording. Marketing is the management of perspectives. Mm-hmm. Right. Explain what that means and and give us some more insight on understanding perspective and how that applies to marketing. So, again, totally stole that off uh, off Rich when he was talking about it, that marketing is simply the management of perception. And I think it it actually fundamentally is. Um, you use marketing to manage how people think about you, your brand um your products and so on and so forth. So, and this is a really important distinction. Uh, marketing is not just about getting another 20,000 people to my website, because if it is, it, it, it's fundamentally broken and it becomes more and more complex and it becomes quite dull and dreary. Um, but when you think about marketing as a management of perception, it's like, yes, I've got to get more people to my website, but how are they going to feel when they get there? What's their experience going to be like? What are they going to perceive? What are they going to see? What are they going to think? Well, then you start to go down little rabbit holes, which become, well, they just become a lot more interesting, don't they? And a lot more impactful and actually have a massive impact on your, on your business. So, um, so that's what we mean by the management of perception, that marketing is a management of perception. It's more than just 
traffic generation, which is what a lot of people in e-commerce think, you know, and um, I get asked all the time, in effect, in many different ways, they're asking the same question, which is what is the latest silver bullet that I can use for my e-commerce marketing? that's gonna generate for me another 100,000 visitors, which is gonna generate another 50,000 bucks, right? What What is that silver bullet? I need that silver bullet because there has to be one because there was one last month and then there was one the month before. And before that, it might've been TikTok. Before that, it was Instagram Reels. But what is it now? Because everything changes so quick. And I think the basic thinking behind toilet seat marketing, behind this whole idea of management of perception is silver bullets are good, but they're rarely brilliant. What is brilliant is doing the fundamentals of business really, really well. Uh, and if you get the fundamentals right, then maybe you can find one or two silver bullets, but there's no point in looking for the silver bullet until you've got the fundamentals right. So how does that apply to us, right? Like I understand the the concept, but what are the implications of that in our everyday life? Like as we're from building our brands to setting up, um, you know, daily marketing initiatives what are the implications of this concept so if you for example um when we uh on our on our own e-commerce website one of the things that we asked was exactly the same question well what does this mean and so we did a we did this sort of simple exercise we were like well let's look at the way a customer feels when they get a parcel from us right because I can manage fairly easily how it works online. It's digital and I can move pixels around and I can, you know, uh, change website designs. But what, how do they actually feel when they, when they get something that they can touch, you know, as opposed to something that they can see? And we looked at this. So we were like, well, what's the customer's perception on this, right? So what are they thinking? Uh, how, what do we need to look at here? And so we were selling beauty products and we quickly realized actually customers, um, when they were buying products from us, they it felt like to them they were buying a gift for themselves. It was quite indulgent. When you looked at the average order value, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was like 60, 70 pounds, which is what, about 90 to 100 dollars, right? So it's a, it's a reasonable sum of money to in effect spend on moisturizer. I mean, it's, you know, you've, you, you've, you've got to make a decision to spend this amount of cash. And so we were like, well, what, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? And we, we came to the conclusion, actually, that they're buying themselves a gift. They're spoiling themselves. They're, they're being slightly indulgent. They're pampering themselves. Um, and so when we, when we understood that, when we understood the customer's perception, we were like, well, what do they feel like when they get our parcel? Well, our parcel came in a brown box, just like Amazon. And it was full of, it had the product in there and the, the packaging, you know, surrounding it to protect it was the big plastic bubbles, which were cheap and lightweight. You know, we could whack them in the box in the warehouse, no problem. It would make the box lightweight. So the shipping costs were down and it keep the product safe. And so we looked at our parcel and then we looked at what the customer's perception was and we saw that there was a huge mismatch. And so we were like, well, how do we make our parcel feel more like a gift? And so we did two simple things. We added an extra layer of cardboard into the box so it made it a bit more complicated to open so it felt more like you're opening a, a gift as opposed to just 
opening a cardboard box and we printed uh, a lovely kind of message on the inside saying that whoever was opening it basically was amazing and wonderful and and so on and so forth um just celebrating their humanity and then inside when you open that piece of cardboard there was tissue paper which had wrapped everything around it and we took out the plastic bubbles and we put in um, something that resonated with us a bit more, which was a bit more kind of, you know, we wanted to be seen as a bit more fun, a bit more quirky. Um, and so we put in their popcorn. And so we changed our packaging material to popcorn, which is like quite real neat. popcorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, real popcorn. Um, it was a crazy idea. And we, trust me, we did so many experiments. What was the best corn to get? You know, because there is a whole lot of different popcorn out there, apparently. <laughs> All right. So, so wait a second. So you're packaging this yourself in your own warehouse? Yes, sir. So you, first off, who came up with the idea of popcorn? Uh, I genuinely can't remember. It was either me or it was a member of the team. It I'm going to say it was a collective team. It came out of a team brainstorm. That much I can tell you. So were you pack, uh, popping bags of microwave popcorn for the tests to fit, to do the drop tests and figure out if this is suitable? Like, how, how did you go through the R&D process of popcorn as packaging? <laughs> you know, if you, I don't know if they... Um, when, you, when I used to go to the cinema as a kid, they had these sort of popcorn machines on the side. Uh, yeah. You know, these sort of popcorn machines. And so I just went out and bought a few of those. And we're like, right, well, let's just go get a few of those popcorn machines. And we bought different types of popcorn from different manufacturers. Um, and we, I mean, we didn't intend to try different types of popcorn. We just assumed, uh, it, Tim, corn quite is wrongly, corn. That, that corn is corn. So we just ordered some corn in and started making it. And we're like, well, this corn kind of burns really easily. And it's like, and then we got into it more and we we're like, oh, maybe there's some better corn and, and so on and so forth. Of course, we didn't do things like cover it in butter and all that sort of stuff. It yeah, was just yeah, yeah. Popcorn. So you kind of, def- what I was imagining was this wonderful smelling warehouse, but oh, it's it the amazing. butter that makes the popcorn yeah. smell good. Yeah, but it did smell like popcorn and, and we had on tap a light calorie snack. You know, if you were hungry, you just go get some popcorn. It's amazing. Oh my gosh. All right. So, um. Wow, this is like I, I want to talk to you for twenty minutes about the popcorn as packaging because I used to own a prep center myself and under packaging, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. like how many drops does it take to actually compress the popcorn and stuff that. But we won't go down that rabbit trail. But you had popcorn <laughs> as packaging. I love this. Now let me ask you this: You've got well, was there anything else to the packaging that you added? No, that well, there was one. I suppose that after a while, what we did um, because this thing really caught on, you know, and customers were loving the popcorn. It was on social media; everyone was you know, um, tweeting or um, posting on Instagram about the popcorn. The one thing that we had to do was we had to then start to put a sticker on the tissue paper. So before you open don't the, eat tiss- the popcorn, basically, not food yes. safe. We, we just basically said this was not pr- produced in a food safe environment. It's biodegradable. So you can put it in your compost bin, you can feed it to the birds, but we probably don't advise you sit down in front of the TV and eat it with your grandkids. Do you know what gotcha. I mean? It was, uh, <laughs> so we were a bit playful with the language. Um, because the amount of people that were saying, man, that popcorn tastes delicious. And I'm like, you do not want to see oh, what no. that popcorn is. <laughs> All right. So, so let me ask you an operational question here. You were selling a product in a box. Mm-hmm. You decided that you've got to up the opening experience and the perceived value and all that stuff. So you added another printed layer of cardboard. You had to Mm -hmm. physically wrap in tissue paper. Mm -hmm. You had to do the popcorn thing. Mm -hmm. When you broke down the labor and material cost, how much extra did it cost you to increase this packaging quality per unit? It was pennies. It was just a few pence. It wasn't really. Yeah. Yeah. 
By the time you, the tissue paper was as cheap as chips. Uh, that's a phrase that we use in Liverpool all the time. Cheap as chips, uh, meaning it's not very expensive. Um, and so the tissue paper was was fractions of a pence, um, especially when you bought it in the quantities that we did. The cardboard boxes, there was no real cost because we were getting the cardboard boxes manufactured anyway. Um, it then came down to the popcorn Packaging now, popcorn was more expensive than the plastic bubbles. Um, the material so, or the labor too, because see, a lot of people forget labor. They think, oh, I can wrap my packaging in this tissue paper, but what they forget is it actually takes human time mm-hmm. to sit and wrap each one of those, not rip it, put the sticker on it. So that's why we didn't we didn't wrap the products individually. We we put a tissue paper lining inside the box, if that makes sense. I got you. And we had the tissue paper pre-cut to be the exact size that it needed to be. So it was very easy just to open, you know, you had to build the box and it was like a, a second or two then to put the sheet of tissue paper inside it. So, um, yeah, I mean, the labor costs went up in terms of uh, popcorn production. But again, the guys in the warehouse are amazing. They just get into a routine. It's like yeah, they just corn assembly on, line it. Just, it. Yeah, yeah it, just, it just goes. And so, but then you've got to think about the, the, the stuff that, it, that you saved. So um, we're not using plastic bubbles. So that was good from a sustainability point of view. You know, I desire to be more ethically and environmentally uh, sustainable. Um, but there was also the fun element. People were talking about this. And it's not just yeah, the, the guys in the warehouse were talking media about exposure exactly. and like the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Because, and we know from marketing research that especially my generation, right, like we prefer sometimes experience over quality. Mm-hmm. It's not about staying at the nicest hotel. It's about staying at the cheap Airbnb with the best experience, mm-hmm. right? It's about not the the shoe, right? I use Tom's shoes all the time. Like Tom's shoes, people buy Tom's shoes because of the experience. They love yep. that idea of buy a pair, give a pair. It's not the mm-hmm. actual shoe itself. Mm-hmm. So if you had to put a number on it, let's say this increased the cost with labor and materials of $1 a unit. Mm-hmm. How much do you think that it increased the perceived value of this product in a monetary fashion is there any way to guess that like did people perceive this as oh this is worth 20 to 20 pounds more or five pounds yeah, what, more or? what i can tell you is from the the data that we saw when we started doing this our repeat customer rate went up by about 20 percent. so, so your the, ltv went up massively per yeah, client exactly so we had a disproportionately large re- amount of revenue from repeat customers compared to other customers uh, from from our competitors um, and so, I mean, disproportionately large. So our repeat customer rate was really, really high. Um, and part of that was the story. Now, don't get me wrong. There were some customers that absolutely hated it. They were just like, why, you know, and we were like, fine, here's, you know, go shop at their website because they're probably better suited for you. In fact, what we ended up doing was we ended up giving people a choice on the website. You can either, we defaulted to popcorn, but you could choose the plastic bubbles if you wanted to, and maybe two, 3% of customers did. Um, but yeah, I, I, our, our repeat customer rate went up by 20%. And when you're talking in the, in the numbers that we are, um, I guess if it cost $1 to extra to do it, we were probably making another $20 return um, based, on, based on what we we're doing at the time. So that was a pretty good you know, test for you. Like that, that was a big success. Mm-hmm. Did that teach you any lessons about perspective? Because I imagine, and I could be wrong here, but I imagine that that just continues opening up different viewpoints when people are posting on social media, right? Because like when people start posting and people start becoming 
basically, um, you know, megaphone holders instead of just people in your funnel. Did you continue with that additional interaction, additional feedback, continue to learn marketing lessons that you apply to other brands too? Yeah, totally. Because you, you, you go, well, hang on a minute. We, we've connected with something here. This whole thing makes sense now. Um, how do we think about, and so what you, what you then do is you then look at every touch point the customer has with your business. Um, and you go, right, I understand the business case here. I understand my perspective, but what's the customer perspective? What are they, what are they seeing here? Um, what are they feeling? What are they sensing? And how can we build on that? And so that, that success in, um, I mean, there were, there were many of those types of successes. They sort of all build on top of each other, but it comes down to a simple thing. Understand every touch point that a customer interacts with you. Think about it from your point of view. Think about it from the customer's point of view and where those two circles interact. There are some really interesting areas to play with. Um, so another example, the same website. Um, I built that first website in 2006 when we launched that business. Uh, I built it. I designed it. I, I did the layout. I did the colors. I did the way it worked, the whole checkout process, everything. A few years later, there was a big redesign, and we got quickly into the idea that every two years we needed to, to you know, have in our heads that we were going to need a new website, new new way of thinking about it. Um, Shopify, Magento weren't really players at this point in time, so we were, we had our, you know, our own team building this website as we went along. And then it struck me. <laughs> I still can't believe it took as long as it did, but it struck me um, probably about. Uh, six, um, seven years after we'd launched the website, I had done three designs for that website, three iterations. And um, we were coming up to the stage where we're going, you know what, we need to rethink this again because everything's moved on and everything's changed. And we were like, well, hang on a minute. The website is one of these massive touch points we have. So let's think about this from the customer point of view. And so uh, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the majority of our clients were female. Um, and we understood what we understood the age range that they were in, but 95% of our customers were female. And so I just asked a very simple question uh, of myself. I'm like, if I have a website that is 95% female, why on earth are you designing it? Am I designing this thing? You know, I have some understanding of e-commerce. I can see from past data how people use the website, but I'm fundamentally not the user of this website. Um, and so we reached out to a friend of mine, funny enough, same guy, Rich in Texas. And the reason I went back to Rich was because he had a design agency that was predominantly female. Um, and I said to Rich, I said, I, I want your team to design this website because they're my users, they're my target market. And I, I want you to come up with something, um, uh, some concepts um, that we can maybe use to sort of drive this thing forward. And you know what, uh, Tim, the, the sort of the designs that they came up with were so far removed from what I'd previously thought about. It was wonderful. It was phenomenal. It was beautiful. And I was like, they changed the logos. They changed, I mean, everything about it changed the colors, the way we used images, the way we uh, sort of played around with different concepts and ideas. They changed the whole design thing. And I thought, well, there's a lesson right there. And again, conversion rate goes up. Customer retention goes up. When you, when you, every time there was one of these step changes where we brought in the customer thinking. And the other one was the language. 
So the first iteration, not only did I design it, I wrote everything on the, on the website. It's like, uh, and then we had this wonderful lady working with us at the time, Naomi, um, who, who was just like, I need to rewrite a lot of this uh, because it doesn't make any sense to, to, to the female of the species. And so she rewrote it. We called it, to, we, we had a verb for it to jerseyfy, to just take some text and just make it sound and attract uh, sorry, sound attractive to our target customer, not to me, do you know what I mean? Who's a bit dull and dreary when it comes to skincare. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, it had a massive impact on everything. Every touch point we then started to examine and look at. So I get it, right? I understand. Like you have to go from the perspective of the customer to try to increase the value, the perceived value, the the everything, right? The whole experience. But we're also in business to make money. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there may be a slippery slope that we can get onto by just focusing on like making this experience as amazing as possible because we could outprice ourselves in the market. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that possible? So is that where the convert is that part of the convergence you talk about between, you know, the buyer and the business, you know, us as the seller? Like we have to find balance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right, Tim. And you ha- so this is where um, I think, you know, phrases like the customer is, customer is always right is utterly wrong because they're not. Um, I've talked That's to right. these customers. They're not they're not always right. In fact, they can be they can be incredibly wrong. But marketing is about managing perception. And I think you yes, we have to manage their perception. And yes, we can make it better. And yes, we can be creative. But we also fundamentally have to understand the business case for doing so. Um, and we we. And involved in that is is understanding our perspective. And it's not just about, like for me, I had to understand what it meant from a profit point of view. But I also had to understand what it meant from a values point of view. You know, there were certain things that I wanted us to stand for as a company. And so certain things that I was prepared to compromise on and certain things that I wasn't. And I needed to understand where we were playing in that field. And so you it's not just a case of putting the customer first in everything, but it is saying that actually their perspective is probably one of the most important. It's just not the only one. And so we do have to weigh things in balance. So I could have gone to town. I could have had every item in that parcel gift wrapped. I could have thrown yeah, in You could have put a hundred dollar bill in each one of those packages yeah, and made them can, super happy. So, can, yeah. so the customer's perspective is important. It doesn't mean that the customer's perspective necessarily has to dictate every decision that we make no i think it has to be considered in every decision that we make and i think creative people are very good at finding ways to enhance perception without necessarily having to enhance cost so um last night we were out to dinner with some friends of ours a married couple and um financially they're struggling a little bit at the moment and so uh, we were talking over dinner um, and sh- she was like, it'd be nice if he was a little bit more romantic. And But in his head, he'd equated romance with cost. I need to be more romantic. I have to buy flowers, but I've not got the budget to buy flowers. And so I just said to him, listen, be creative, man. You're, you're a creative guy. You can be romantic without spending money. You can just leave a post-it note on a mirror. You can write a little letter. You can do this. You can do, do you know what I mean? D- you don't have to be restricted, I think is probably the best way. So when considering the customer aspect of things, it's a bit like my friend in the restaurant. Sometimes we get we get so tunneled vision that to do something for the customer means I need to spend a lot of money. And 
my counsel has always been, that's ah, not necessarily true. I think we can just be creative and we can be surprising um, without necessarily having to spend a load of cash. Man, I love that. I think that so many times, in fact, I spoke about this recently at, a, at an event in Vegas. So many times we look at what other brands or we look at other companies are doing and we feel like their path to success is the one we have to follow. We have yeah. to follow this exact path, right? This, these are the seven steps they took. We have to take those. But a lot of times we're looking at companies that are VC backed or looking at companies that have a ton of budget to spend or even a different category needs to be sold differently. And the idea of being able to stay, I don't know, nimble and use creativity, like you said, um, the post-it notes as opposed to lavish dates and vacations. Like we can do that as business owners too, because you know, in reality, everything you're talking about, I love, but not everybody that's listening to this episode has their own warehouse and they can go out and buy popcorn machines and mm -hmm. fill their box with popcorn. But I think the lesson here is like, we can think outside of the box. We can get super creative. Another thing that you mentioned on where did this idea of the popcorn come up with? Like it was just a brainstorming session. And for all of you that are listening, if you do not have a team to brainstorm with, you do have a team. One thing that I absolutely love about this community, in fact, I was talking to, uh, to one of my good friends in the industry this morning, right before this, this interview, we talked about like this community of entrepreneurs, right? Whatever your business, whether it's affiliates or digital marketing or services or e-com, whatever it is, like entrepreneurs, sometimes we get in our own heads and we think that we're all alone. We think that we're trying to figure this out on our own. We have to figure this out on our own. We have to follow somebody else's path that may not be the right path for us. Like there are communities, there are um, Facebook groups, there are, you know, local meetups and like, man, have these brainstorming sessions with each other because uh, there are resources and there are people that want to help you. So sorry, getting off on a tangent here for no, a second, no, but I'm pulling good. out like right. so many great little tidbits. In fact, if you look, if those of you that are watching this on YouTube, like I'm making copious notes <laughs> um, that Matt has, has dropped here more so than most episodes recently. Um, and I'm going to steal these ideas and figure out a way to, to put those into the content. So how would you finalize the synchronization? Like, I understand, Matt, that we have to look from the other perspective, the toilet, the, the perspective of sitting on the toilet, right? Mm -hmm. We have to increase the experience to stand out from our customers and make our customers into raving fans. We also have to balance our capabilities and our costs and our resources because we can't always, you know, do things right now. It might have to take a little longer. We're going to try things that are not going to work. And we have to realize like, hey, it, it takes several rounds to get it right. And sometimes mm -hmm. we have to try, mm -hmm. you know, we have to get up to the bat and strike out five times before we'd hit a home run. So what other kind of closing piece of advice would you give to people on how to sit down and contemplate and strategize how to actually tactically merge in an operational way, both perspectives mm -hmm. from the buyer and you as a business owner? Well, to, to round the analogy off, um, there's something else you have to think about. Uh, if you ever go to a bathroom, which let's just face it, everybody has, is, you know, if you're a human, you've gone to the, you've gone to the loo um, and you walk in the toilet stall and you can, you can see it from your perspective. You turn around, you sit on the toilet seat, you can see it from the user's perspective. But there's one other aspect to this whole experience um, that is worth drawing out. And it's the sink where you wash your hands. And this is really important because going to the toilet is, is it sort of has implied into it that I, I need the facility to wash my hands. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's one of those things that's not talked about. It's not vocalized. It's just 
It's just expected by the user. And one of the things that we have to do, I think, as e-commerce owners, when we're thinking about these things, when we've made a list of touch points, everywhere a customer is going to interact with us, from our advertising, our social media, to where they engage on our website and understanding how they engage with our website. What does it feel like when they receive a parcel? How do they engage with our customer service? All of those aspects follow-up email campaigns, remarketing, you know, every single touch point we're looking at. We have to see it from our point of view. We have to see it from the customer's point of view. But there are always these little things that customers expect. They don't vocalize. Um, and if you don't, if you don't deliver on them, if you don't have that sync there, you've got a fundamental problem. Um, and one of the best ways to figure that out, apart from talking to your customers, if you're not already doing this, is to find out who your nearest competitors are um, in terms of what you're selling online. Who are the websites you're competing with? Every six months, if it's possible, I depend on the products that you sell, um, I would be going onto their website and buying from them. And I would be getting those deliveries sent to you. Um, I would then send them back. Some of them, what do they do with refunds? I would call customers. Do you know what I mean? And I would be, I would be looking at the experience you have from your competitor and going, how is that different from mine? Is there something here that they're doing that I fundamentally should be doing that I'm not, right? Um, that can surprise and delight the customers. So what I mean by that is, um, yes, I need to be able to wash my hands at the sink, but I can put in there very nice smelly soap. I can make the paper towels a little bit nice. Do you know what I mean? There's things I can do to make even that feel like a great experience rather than just something that I've added on and forgotten about. And it's, it's about then thinking about the experience as a whole, the whole customer journey, the whole customer cycle. So it's very exciting to get a parcel that's in popcorn. It's novel. It's unique. But that's not the whole experience of dealing with that company. Um, and so I have to look at their whole journey, every single touch point, and go, what can I do at every single stage to make this complete? And if you do that, it can take months. It can take years. So much to take away from this episode. I absolutely love this. Um, man, I wish that I could I could go for another 45 minutes and talk to you about this stuff. I feel like I got hung up on the popcorn, but the popcorn <laughs> is just such, it's like such a catalyst for so many other thoughts about um, creativity and like even little things like you said, um, this is, you know, good for the environment, which adds a little touch point with more, more social media love. It's so much stuff here. Um, I appreciate you being on. It sounds like you're a busy guy and we, myself and the listeners appreciate folks like you that get on and share your knowledge. You're not asking for anything in return. Um, but you're one of the, the OGs in the space and, you know, getting to learn from you and understand some of your perspective and some of your lessons is super valuable to all of us. So thank you so much. If any of you are listening and, and love this episode, make sure to do two things. One, leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And, uh, if you want to show Matt some love, just tell him you love the episode or, see some more of his content. He has a lot of content. He actually has his own e-commerce podcast and you can find all this stuff by going to mattedmondson.com. If you go to mattedmondson.com, he's got links to um, his podcast, all of his other content, as well as his uh, e-commerce uh, services company, right? I can't even call it agency because they do everything from uh, fulfillment to digital marketing and all sorts of crazy stuff. So make sure to check that out, mattedmondson.com. Matt, I have to ask you a question that I haven't asked a lot of our guests lately. I've kind of gotten into the habit of it, but 
as you were figuring out life, as you were figuring out how to succeed in business, um, there's probably a book that stands out in your mind as one of the most impactful and influential um, books that you ever read. What is that book and why? The most impactful book that I've ever read. Um, I, <laughs> that's a really great question, Tim. Uh, I could say the Bible uh, from a faith perspective. I think it's probably got more wisdom in it than I know what to do with. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. Um, I appreciate that's not for every reader. Um, How to Make Friends and Influence People was probably one of the first sort of self-help style books that I read that actually had a massive impact on me and changed how I interacted with people when I was about 18. That was massive. And I still think it's got a lot of lessons for for e-commerce entrepreneurs even today. You can learn a lot from that book. And then there's Rich Rising, the guy who I stole the toilet seat marketing thing from. He's got a book called Church Marketing 101. Uh, which I think is, is, if I'm honest, I've said this to Richard, I think it's a great title for a book, but the content of the book is phenomenal if you want to learn about marketing and the managing, management of perception. Um, I think there's so many great lessons in there. Amazing. Well, um, especially the last one there is not one that we've heard uh, suggested on this show, so that's great. I appreciate you uh, sharing everything with us. Um, let's stay in touch because I feel like I could talk to you forever and, and, uh, and keep learning from you. So I appreciate that. So all of you that are listening, we appreciate you sticking through to the end and we'll see you on next week's episode.